WHQR Public Media in Wilmington, North Carolina, this is Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The United States Supreme Court identified same-sex marriage as a civil right in 2015. But people who are LGBTQ or plus still face a broad range of discriminatory and hostile behavior, even here in the Cape Fear region. While older members of the LGBTQ plus community have often worked out a lifestyle and social circle that is supportive and accepting, there is not necessarily a clear and nurturing path for the next generation. People who identify as LGBTQ must constantly consider whether they are safe psychologically, socially, and even physically. It requires a constant vigilance not necessary for straight people and therefore not often understood by the straight community. Today, we'll hear from a man who leads a local church and who volunteers on two foundations that support LGBTQ people and educational efforts. He'll talk about his work in the community but he's also going to tell his own story, which includes deep personal trauma. It's that trauma that led him back to the church and launched his search for a spiritual sanctuary where he could be gay and Christian. Reverend John McLaughlin is senior pastor at St. Jude's Metropolitan Community Church in Wilmington. He's also a member of the board of directors of the Frank Haar Foundation, a local LGBTQIA advocacy nonprofit that provides support for its community and education for the community at large. And he's a board member of St. Jude's Foundation, which distributes education grants. Reverend John McLaughlin, welcome to Coastline. Thank you, I'm happy to be here. We're so happy to have you with us today. You have said that in some ways you feel as though Wilmington is a fairly accepting place for the LGBTQ community, but that there is this sort of don't ask, don't tell mentality. Don't do anything in public that reminds me that you're gay and we'll be okay. Can you, can you just talk about that level of acceptance, what that means to you and and what that would look like versus real acceptance here. Sure. Um, when I moved here about 10 years ago, I came from uh, Washington, DC, uh, which is a, a bit of a larger city and a very large gay population um, and always was around um, other gay and LGBT people and always felt very safe uh, in that in that locale. Um, I love being in Wilmington, but it's a little bit of a smaller town. And while through my work and other personal relationships, uh, I, I have a lot of LGBT friends and move kind of in those circles, uh, I do realize that there are, there is, you know, a, a kind of a cultural, societal leftover perhaps of um, not really putting yourself out there um, for other people to have to deal with, uh, let alone accept. And what does that mean in a practical sense for you? I, what do you think about when you walk out the front door of, of your home? Uh, personally, I don't think too much about it. Um, I'm very comfortable uh, in my own skin. I'm also very comfortable in my position here in town. 
Um, and uh, I think, uh, you know, a lot of people just simply see me perhaps as one or the other, um, but also, you know, I just don't personally feel threatened all the time. There have been one or two instances uh, since I've lived here uh, where it's been a little dangerous, um, but certainly not uh, on an everyday or even every week or monthly uh, basis. That's not the, the true for everyone else, however. Right. And so you're talking about physical danger specifically that you, you've seen a couple of examples of potential for that? Uh, yes. So, uh, yeah, on the physical danger front, for instance, at church one time um, on a Sunday morning, uh, probably about eight years ago, you know, a group of protesters came with their, you know, normal hateful placards and speech and yelling at people and um, we had to deal with that. And that's very scary, you know, for me and other members of the congregation. Um, so that happened once. Uh, but I also, you know, know quite a few people who have either been beaten up or attacked here in Wilmington um, or, you know, verbally threatened or made fun of, certainly, even just walking down the road and have someone yell something from a car or across the street. Which is why I think in the first conversation that we had on Coastline about this with Vic and Tony, they talked about how they wouldn't reach for their partner's hand if they were walking down the street in downtown Wilmington, just because it might be okay, but it might not. And it could ruin a really nice Sunday afternoon. Do you, do you foresee a point when that isn't part of the landscape for members of the LGBTQ community here? Oh, I certainly do, yes. Um, I don't know when that point would come, but I'm, I'm hopeful and I, I think we'll, we will see it. And you've also said that uh, you think people here are accepting of LGB people, but you might leave the T off. Can you just talk about that for a moment? That's right. Um, so let me just say up front, though, uh, as a as a gay man and part of the gay and lesbian community, um, I can speak with somewhat of authority and, and experience of, of having lived that life myself. And I do want to say, as you know, I'm not trans and we can often, you know, equate being gay or lesbian with sort of the same thing as being uh, trans. And it's not. Um, and so from that perspective, I can say that I, I see, like anybody else would, a lot of confusion and a misunderstanding about trans people. And that leads to, um, you know, hate and a lot of uh, violence. And I would say much more physical violence than I've ever experienced in life. Now, you, you alluded to the fact that you came to Wilmington 10 years ago to take your first post as pastor of, of St. Jude's Metropolitan Community Church. You just completed seminary. And this is the other side of Wilmington that you've experienced. You say that St. Jude's MCC already existed and there were a number of years the church didn't have a pastor. So how did they stay open? How did they function? Right, so St. Jude's has been in Wilmington for almost 30 years now, started in 1992. Um, and right before I got here, uh, about 12 years ago, uh, the pastor that was here uh, left and it took took the congregation about a year and a half, almost two years uh, to find their new pastor, which would be me. 
so they had this time period where there was no official pastor. Uh, so people within the congregation, a, a deacon, a couple of the deacons stepped up to sort of um, play the role, but also a lot of uh, pastors and retired pastors from churches in Wilmington uh, really kept us going, um, came and helped us on Sunday mornings, helped us with uh, how to keep church bureaucracy running if, if people weren't familiar with that. And so that was a, you know, a great help to St. Jude's uh, to stay open during that time. When we narrow the focus on on local attitudes toward the toward the LGBT community here, there's um, there's the larger community that is the Cape Fear region, and then there's the Christian community. What is that like, and how much does that vary? Obviously, there are churches and there are Christian um, clergy members here who support people in the LGBTQ community, but that's not true across the board in Christian churches, is it? That's correct, right. Um, so in most of my daily um, living and interactions with other faith community leaders, it's very positive. And I have a great relationship with uh, people from other churches, other congregations, other houses of faith uh, here in town. Um, but I'm, I'm aware that there are uh, several churches, uh, pastors here in town who, you know, certainly are not, not accepting of homosexuality uh, and certainly would not be uh, too pleased to be on a, a committee or a board or, or anything else with me. When you encounter that, I'm sure there's part of you that just knows to expect it. But when you actually are face to face with that, how, how does that feel? Well, I can say it used to upset me a great deal, um, but I have just come to learn to accept um, that uh, their understanding of the world, their understanding of people, their ability to um, be compassionate toward other people is, is lacking. And depending on their attitude and what the situation is, I can either uh, just sort of turn the other way or you know, speak to them in a kind way and find out what their response is going to be. I try to be the one who doesn't get angry in these situations. Yes. Now, there are some passages that people who are anti-LGBTQ often cite from the Bible, and you frequently call them clobber passages. And I know we're not going to have time to get through all of this before we go to break, but can you just kind of briefly tell us what a clobber passage is in the Bible? Or there are, um, depending on how you count them, anywhere from five to seven passages in the Bible uh, that people can take out and take out of context and use to clobber uh, LGBTQ people over the head and say, this is why you're wrong, this is why you're sinful. Um, most of them are found in the Old Testament or Christian Old Testament or Hebrew scriptures and one or two in the uh, New Testament. You're listening to Coastline. It's a look at being queer in the Cape Fear region. Reverend John McLaughlin of St. Jude's MCC is my guest today. When we come back from this break, we'll hear more about clobber passages and how Pastor John himself explained them. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. 
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn. If you are a member of a marginalized group, such as the LGBTQ community, what level of acceptance do you experience in the Cape Fear region? What do you expect? What would you like? We're exploring those questions today with Reverend John McLaughlin of St. Jude's Metropolitan Community Church in Wilmington. He's also on two boards that support the LGBTQ community, St. Jude's Foundation and the Frank Har Foundation. And just before we went to break, Reverend McLaughlin, you were explaining what you call clobber passages in the Bible, how most of them are in the Old Testament, but not all of them, and how they're what anti-LGBTQ people use to tell people in that community why they're wrong. Can you just talk about how you came at those passages and how you might explain what they actually mean to you to say a younger version of yourself or a, or a kid who might be struggling with this and who's been bashed by others with these passages. Sure. Um, well, like you said, there's about seven of these clobber passages um, in, in the whole Bible. Um, which I'd like to mention, there's, uh, I think, over 33,000 different verses in the Bible. So seven is a, a tiny percentage for people to keep hauling out and using in, a, in an abusive way. Um, but, you know, one that a lot of people have heard of, if they don't know where it comes from, is a man shall not lie with another man. It is an abomination uh, that comes from the book of Leviticus. Um, and a all of these passages, especially all of them from the uh, Old Testament, um, have to do with uh, people's behavior, uh, either in a, uh, a religious setting, for instance, a priest or temple setting, um, or the society that existed uh, two or three or 4,000 years ago in the land of ancient Israel, um, both of which uh, I don't live in today. Um, so that's one way to kind of look at these, um, that, uh, you know, the whole Bible for me has truth in it, but not every single word is, is factual. And so we have to be able to uh, distinguish between what is applicable today and, and what is not. Yeah. Can you t tell us about the Metropolitan Community Church itself? Where and when was it first founded and, and why? Yeah, Metropolitan Community Churches, which we just say MCC to make it easier, uh, was founded in 1968 uh, in Los Angeles, California, uh, by a man named Troy Perry, who had been uh, for most of his life a Southern Pentecostal preacher from the backwoods of North Florida. Um, you know, started preaching in his early teens, married children, all of that. Uh, later in life, uh, realized he was gay and came out as gay, lost everything, um, church, wife, kids, uh, moved to California. Um, and actually when he tells his own story, he even says at one point he tried to commit suicide. And it was after his suicide attempt that uh, he, he heard, you know, a voice or an urging from God asking him to start a church uh, for God's children who had been turned aside, namely the LGBTQ community. And so he started it in 1968. 
And you said the Wilmington uh, MCC, St. Jude's MCC, was started about 30 years ago? Yes, it was uh, formed in 1992. And what was the reason for the formation here in a relatively small town? Right. So there's a lot that went into it, and I hope I get uh, most of it correct. Um, but uh, there was a small group of people who uh, wanted to have a church where they could be um, open about who they were, some gay and lesbian people um, who wanted a church where they could worship, uh, express their you know, Christian faith uh, without hiding who they were. So there was this background work going on uh, by several people to do that, uh, who had already contacted uh, MCC headquarters, if there was such a thing, to find out how to become affiliated uh, as a church. Uh, and then there were some events that happened in Wilmington. Um, one, uh, the most notable one, is the murder of a young woman uh, named Talana Krieger, uh, who was a lesbian and brutally murdered uh, in 1990, I believe. Um, and, you know, was treated, you know, very poorly in the press, you know, uh, the, actually the killer, um, who is still in jail, um, was sort of portrayed in a, um, not a nice way, but, oh, that poor man went crazy and killed this woman. And she was barely identified by her name or just the lesbian who died. Um, and that event in the Wilmington community really uh, brought together uh, the community itself, the LGBT community plus others. Um, when they tried to have her funeral, when they were going to have her funeral, it was hard for them to find a church, first of all, to do that. Uh, they found a church, um, I believe up in Hampstead, I, I don't know which one, uh, but when the pastor was alerted by one of his own congregation members that this was a lesbian, that that funeral was abruptly canceled. Um, and the friends had to uh, try to find another place to have it. And they did. They found a, actually they found the Church of the Good Shepherd downtown uh, who held that funeral for them. Uh, but that confirmed in people's minds that we really needed our own place. Uh, as uh, Frank Carr, who we'll talk about in a moment of the Frank Carr Foundation, uh, he uh, is quoted as saying, we need a place to marry and bury our own. You're listening to Coastline. It's a conversation about being LGBTQ plus in the Cape Fear region. My guest today is Reverend John McLaughlin, senior pastor at St. Jude's Metropolitan Community Church. He's also a board member of two local foundations that support LGBTQ issues and people, St. Jude's Foundation and the Frank Haar Foundation. Now, your own journey back to the church is a really interesting one. You yourself have acknowledged the fact that many gay people can't reconcile being gay and being Christian. You were raised as a Catholic. Can you just talk about what it was like to be in the Catholic Church as a kid, what that experience meant to you? Yes. Um, so I actually never had any uh, very bad or traumatic experiences uh, with um, with growing up in the Catholic Church and also knowing that I was gay. Um, I know I'm very lucky uh, in that in that sense, but it, it just never happened to me. Um, however, there was uh, either a direct teaching. I also went to Catholic school for a few years and was taught by nuns and a few brothers. Um, and so there was either a, 
a direct teaching or at least an understanding that being gay was wrong. Um, I don't remember any of them ever hauling out these clobber passages at me, but it was certainly understood that it was wrong. And somehow um, I knew at that time, even at a young age, that I wasn't wrong, they were. <laughs> and um, so that's how I got through that. And, and I must say my experience with the Catholic Church as far as uh, going to church was, was a very pleasant one. I enjoyed it. Um, nothing bad, like I said, ever really happened to me, but I know that's not true for everyone, but I was, that's how I grew up in the church. You were an altar boy. I was an altar boy. I followed in the footsteps of all of my brothers. How many brothers do you have? Well, um, I, uh, five. And so in terms of your family, and I realize there's this, you want to protect a certain amount of privacy. So I, you know, I don't want to um, push in ways that aren't appropriate. But did the rest of your family know you were gay when, when you did? Was this something that was just, what was that like for you in your family with all those brothers? Uh, <clears throat> I actually have no idea. <laughs> Uh, so we came in two groups. Uh, there's an older group of four kids and a younger group of four kids. Uh, so the older group, uh, which I'm not part of, um, a lot of them are, had already moved out or had children and had you know gone off to live by themselves before I was even in my teenage years. Um, so we actually didn't live uh, in the same place at the same time uh, that, that I can remember much of. Um, my brother and sister, who I grew up with, one died as a young child. So the three of us, um, we grew up pretty close and it was just never talked about. Um, I didn't hide anything, but it just never came up either. You know, it, I was 10 or 12. And so I wasn't really expressing myself outwardly at that time. Um, and, and as years went by, um, I, I didn't really come out to anyone. It just was after a while, everyone just sort of knew. So you're saying you didn't feel any particular judgment or that if you went to your parents and said, hey, I'm gay, how do you think they would have reacted? Or how did they react when, when you brought your first boyfriend home or when you first acknowledged openly that you were in a relationship with a man? Right. So while I was growing up and living at home. So my teenage years and until I moved out, uh, I never brought a boyfriend home. So that never happened. Um, there was a time, however, when um, I had a conversation with my father. Um, you know, ad admittedly, I think I had gotten into a little bit of trouble uh, somewhere at school or somewhere. And, and it, it uh, and prompted my father to ask me, uh, do you know what being gay is? And I remember telling him, yes, it's when two men love each other. And he got very angry at that. And you know, I remember him sort of slamming his fist down on the countertop and saying, no, that's not right. It's when two men are having sex and that's wrong. Um, and so that's when he told me what he thought. Let me say right now, though, he changed 180 degrees later in life. But uh, that was what I was told as a child, young man. Sure. Yeah. And so you came back to the church, you wound up leaving the Catholic Church and 
you were in a relationship as a young adult and something happened that caused you to do some really deep personal seeking and, and caused you to look for a church that could be a sanctuary for you in a number of ways. What, what happened? What led to that? So I was living in Washington, DC for most of my early adult life. And, um, I, you know, I had someone that I was dating, a man I was dating. Um, and we were uh, beaten up one night, uh, coming out of a, a dance club. And, uh, you know, I wasn't beaten up too badly, but he was, um, and he eventually died. Uh, and that was, you know, extremely traumatic for me. Um, I had also known about that same time, um, at least one person who had committed suicide, uh, because they were gay. Um, even though they were active in the gay community of which Washington DC has a very large one, um, there were still tapes in his head that told him something was wrong. Um, and so I had these feelings inside of me that I really needed to deal with. I mean, I've always been a, a spiritual person. I've always believed in God. Um, you know, I never actually formally, you know, stormed out of church and said, I'm leaving. Um, but I wasn't going to church. Uh, and I felt that I really needed that spiritual connection with other people um, to help me through this. I had a lot of friends who were very supportive, obviously. Um, but it, I wasn't having that spiritual hole uh, or longing um, filled by anything in life. Uh, so I went church shopping. I went back to the Catholic church. I enjoyed the ritual, um, but I wasn't quite uh, completely fed there. I, I, with another friend, we went to every single church we could find. We went to the Buddhist temples, everything, uh, you know, and some were nice, but we didn't like this part. We liked this part, but we didn't like that. Uh, until finally someone asked me, uh, had I gone to the, uh, MCC, Metropolitan Community Church in Washington, D.C., and I had never heard of it before, although I lived actually nearby. Uh, so I checked it out one Sunday, and uh, frankly, I've never left. It's interesting that you say when, uh, when you were a kid, the teaching of the Catholic Church and the nuns and the priests that homosexuality was wrong was was understood, but you knew something in you knew that that idea was wrong and that you were okay. And yet you had another friend who died by suicide because the tapes in his head were telling him that he was wrong. Why do you think you knew? What's the difference there? How did you know that you were okay? That's a very good question. I've never thought of it that way before. Um, I don't know why I thought that I was okay. Um, I, I guess I never experienced uh, anything in my family or home life where that was brought up aside from that incident with my father that happened later. Um, I guess I just never heard those overt messages to me. Um, so my friend who committed suicide, uh, he was a young man and this was, you know, I was 30 years old by then. So he may have been hearing different messages as well. Um, you know, perhaps I should say that God was already speaking to me and telling me that I was uh, okay who I was. Um, let, me, let me say it that way and believe that. Um, 
on, you know, on a similar front, you have to remember when I was growing up, the major sin of the church um, and really of society uh, was not being gay. It was divorce. So when I grew up, the, hard, the, the worst thing you could do uh, was to was to be divorced. And that was the main message. Now, I probably knew that would never happen to me. <laughs> Bringing it back to Wilmington. So you, you wound up going to seminary and uh, you say you enjoyed seminary very much. You completed that in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, also a small town. And, and then the post in Wilmington opened up and you accepted it. When did you learn about Frank Haar and the Frank Haar Foundation? Uh, immediately upon arriving in Wilmington uh, and at St. Jude's. Uh, the Frank Haar Foundation um, had its uh, genesis within St. Jude's. I can say Frank Haar, uh, the person himself, uh, was one of the founding members of St. Jude's. Uh, he died in 2008, and he was uh, he was a local activist, you know, for years and decades before that. Um, and either the year he died or shortly thereafter, um, his partner um, formed the Frank Carr Foundation. Um, and at the time when I moved here, it, it, it was still under the umbrella of St. Jude's, uh, specifically for, you know, charity and 501c3 purposes until it uh, became its own 501c3 and was able to move out into the world. And now there's another foundation, the St. Jude's Foundation. Can you tell us what that foundation does and how it's different from the Frank Haar Foundation in its in its service? Sure. So the, the long name is the St. Jude's Wilmington Foundation. Um, and that was, we formed that in church about 10 years ago. Um, and that was formed as a separate legal entity from the church uh, to be a foundation that supports um, services and resources in the community. Now, primarily, we support St. Jude's in our ministries, uh, but a large uh, portion of what we do uh, for the community is to provide educational um, scholarships uh, to those seeking any form of secondary education. And it's just interesting that people who are LGBTQ plus would need a, an outside source of funds for secondary education. Maybe I'll ask you to talk more about that when we come back from this break. You're listening to Coastline. It's a conversation with Reverend John McLaughlin about living in the Cape Fear region as a member of the LGBTQ plus community. We'll be right back after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Lewis Hilburn for Coastline.
You're listening to Coastline. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. The Supreme Court of the United States ruled that same-sex marriage is a fundamental civil right in 2015. But it was as far back as 1973 that the American Psychiatric Association removed the diagnosis of homosexuality from the second edition of its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. This was, according to the NIH, the beginning of the end of organized medicine's official participation in the social stigmatization of homosexuality. In 1990, the World Health Organization stopped classifying it as a disease, but the fight for legitimacy rages on, especially in the religious community. With me to explore this is Reverend John McLaughlin, senior pastor at St. Jude's Metropolitan Community Church in Wilmington. He's also a board member of St. Jude's Wilmington Foundation and the Frank Haar Foundation. And just before we went to break, Reverend McLaughlin, you were explaining that uh, St. Jude's Foundation and Wilmington goes in there somewhere. I'm not sure that I put it in the right order. So please correct me, but that it distributes educational grants for people seeking some form of secondary education. Why is there a separate need for people in the LGBTQ community for that? Uh, you had the name correct. It's St. Jude's Wilmington Foundation, by the way. Um, okay. I'm not sure there's a, a separate unique need for that. Um, it's you know, all students really trying to go to a, a college or, or get a degree after that uh, really need to seek some out, outside funding. Uh, so as an LGBT organization, uh, we have uh, focused on giving that money to um, either LGBT people themselves or those uh, seeking degrees and trying to go into work around public policy or anything that might promote uh, equality, not just in the LGBT community, although that is a focus, um, but on public policy and equality uh, issues. Now, the other nonprofit that you're involved with in Wilmington is the Frank Haar Foundation, as we've talked about, and they offer an array of support services, including uh, something called safe zone training. Can you explain what that is? Yes, uh, safe zone training uh, is provided to help um, particularly people who uh, do not understand uh, LGBT issues and are either working in or responsible for um, a, a public space in town, put it that way, and, and how we can uh, educate people so that they understand um, not special needs of LGBT people, but simple considerations of how we talk, how we act, how we look at things, how we approach people, how we make them feel comfortable um, in a space and not threatened the minute they walk in the door. Such a good idea. And so many of us need that education. I include myself in that. But can you give us some examples of things that straight people do and say absolutely unwittingly? that are either actually harmful or abusive or maybe just rude and thoughtless? Uh, sure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Pull out the list. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, one thing uh, would be uh, 
really for anyone who's just hanging out with a group of friends or colleagues or anything like that and a a, a, a joke comes out or a reference that um, you know is very hurtful to some people um, where they don't think about it at all. Uh, it's funny. They thought they were telling a joke. Um, and so that that happens all the time. Um, in public space type of scenarios, uh, it can be just how we refer to boys and girls or don't cry like a little girl or you you know don't you know do something like that or um, particularly if uh, someone looks a little different. Um, you know, if someone say is a, a, a trans teenager um, and has started to dress a little differently or whatever it may be. Um, to call out that uh, and, you know, ask perhaps again what they might think is a lighthearted question. Um, are you a boy? Are you a girl? You know, ha ha, what side of the room are you going to sit on type of thing? Um, that can destroy somebody. Yeah. Yeah. I understand the Frank Har Foundation also has support services for elders in the LGBTQ community. And this is something a lot of people don't think about, you know, referring again to that first conversation we had about queer in the Cape Fear with Vic and Tony. Vic talked about as a middle-aged woman, she's okay. She's fine. She's got her circles. She's got resources. But she has to remember how important it is not to pull up the ladder behind her and, and reach out to the next generation. So I want to talk more about that. But but what we don't think about often is being an older person in that community. What kinds of issues do older people face? Uh, the first one I think would be isolation. Um, if uh, your friends are no longer around you or have died, or perhaps you've uh, moved here or retired here and, and your spouse or partner then dies and you're left uh, with no, uh, no support whatsoever. So isolation is a big one. So we, we do a lot to try to reach out to um, LGBT elders to, you know, we have social activities and we have a weekly uh, get together, which has been online for the past year, but looking forward to doing that in person again. Um, and even reaching out to people uh, who uh, just need someone to talk to, uh, either on the phone or hopefully one day uh, meet people face to face and just be a friend. Yeah. Uh, LGBT elders also uh, usually need help, um, as all elders do, uh, say for like with the uh, organization such as AARP, which the, the local chapter, I just have to plug them, is a huge supporter of our community. Um, but to navigate um, health issues and ways to find doctors. Uh, and the doctor issue actually goes uh, across the, the whole age spectrum of anyone looking for a doctor. You know, I mean, a couple groups on online and one of the main questions we get from teenagers, 20 year olds to, to elders are, you know, are, can you all list some friendly doctors? What about elders who find that it's time to go into uh, an independent living or an assisted living facility? What, what kinds of things do they have to grapple with that people who are straight would not? Right. So that is um, what we actually call going back into the closet, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and if we think about people who have probably been, you know, some of some of us, you know, activists all our whole lives have fought for uh, things to be different, uh, to face going into a, a long-term living community. 
um, where people are not accepting um, and either go back into the closet or, or face real physical danger, uh, both from the staff as well as uh, other residents. It's not a safe place. Yeah. And so what what can other folks do, like people with the Frank Haar Foundation do to help in those situations? Um, well, safe zone training, for one. Um, we also hold um, educational workshops uh, periodically um, to help educate spe specific groups of people like healthcare professionals um, on some of these issues, uh, on ways to talk and be uh, make sure that you're friendly to someone who's coming in, you know, not only with the case of healthcare professionals, you know, you're sick, you're looking for something and, and you're not feeling well already. Um, and, and to have to have, uh, you know, navigate those waters. Um, I did want to say, though, you know, not all uh, long term uh, residential communities in this town uh, are dangerous for LGBT people. Many, many are. Uh, but there's a lot who have done training or who ha are, are sensitive. It's just a very scary time to um, think that you can no longer be yourselves just to live. You're more vulnerable than you've been since you were a child. Right. Another element of, of the services that the Frank Haar Foundation provides is AIDS awareness. Now, for many straight people, this is something that isn't really part of the day-to-day -day, uh, thought process. This was a big thing in the 80s and 90s. And I think a lot of people have sort of figured it's much less of an issue. People are surviving. Where is that now in terms of how present is that in the LGBTQ community? It's present on a number of levels. Um, but first, let me say that, you know, AIDS has not gone away. Uh, there's still thousands and thousands of people contracting it every year in the United States um, and, and still dying, of course. Um, and as a matter of fact, in the South, in the Southern states, uh, we have the highest infection rates, I believe, um, of the country. Uh, so this is a very real issue. Um, as far as dealing with HIV issues, um, again, it's, you know, for a lot of people, especially if they're newly infected, uh, may not know where to go. One of the reasons may be what you just said. It's not front and center uh, on a lot of people's minds. It's just not there. Uh, so where do you find that information? Uh, so we try to be a resource center for that. Why are infection rates higher in the South? That's a good question to which I don't know if I have the, the good answer to. Um, it's lack of awareness, it's lack of um, safe practices. Uh, why that is, I, I'd have to go research that and get back to you. Can we talk about shame for a minute with, with the younger generation and not pulling the ladder up behind you? Thinking back to, um, and it sounds like, you know, relative to a lot of other LGBT teens, you had a relatively charmed existence. I'm sure you had your share of struggles, but there are kids out there right now, locally, who think about suicide every day and who feel inside like they're some kind of mutation or monster. 
they're they're just full of shame and it's really hard to see past that what would you say to that kid right now how what is the path through the shame i would say uh well first i would tell them that they're not alone um and i would tell them that my uh school years uh, and high school years were absolutely horrible. Uh, you know, I was teased and bullied uh, all the time, and I, I just wanted to uh, get out of that experience. Um, so they're not alone. A lot of people are being treated this way, um, but that a lot of people have found ways to survive that, either, you know, by finding a best friend who's understanding uh, or an adult uh, that could be a safe person to talk to. And often that is they can't find one, and often that is not their parents. Um, but also, you know, several years ago, you may remember there was a, a campaign that uh, attracted a lot of attention called It, uh, it Gets Better. Uh, I think that was the name of it. Um, and just let people know that it does get better, that a lot of the struggles that we go through as, as children and, and teenagers and young adults um, seem like the end of the world, and they, they can be dangerous and hurtful. Um, and we can watch other people die and be killed, but that uh, desire to survive and to uh, not only survive for ourselves, so, but that we can be the uh, person and people that can help others survive, uh, to tap into that and know that there is nothing wrong with you, that nothing inside you weren't created ugly. Um, you know, there's a, a saying that um, we've used a lot in, in our church um, that God doesn't create trash, uh, we do. Um, and so that we were all created as beautiful human beings, no matter what anybody else wants to throw at us. And so you are in this more comfortable place. You've, you've told us that you're very comfortable in your own skin at this point, but you still do run up against, I guess, hate for lack of a better word, locally. Do you have to refill your own reservoir from time to time and do a reset for yourself? even though you're all grown up and evolved <laughs> and leading a church, are there ways that you take care of yourself when sometimes that gets to be too much? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, one way that I, I do that uh, is, is a spiritual way that anyone can tap into. Um, daily meditations, uh, we're lucky to be where to live where we live, uh, walks on the beach in the morning or the evening. Uh, we all, most of us enjoy that, just have this time to really just connect with ourselves internally. Uh, I think it's very important to find at least one thing where we can look deeply inside of ourselves and, and notice what is good and holy, as well as, you know, if we're connecting with the universe or God or any spirit and know that we're part of that. So resources for people, if this is the first that they're hearing about this and they want to reach out, where can they go if they want to connect with you or, or find other kinds of resources? Right. So uh, first I'll say you can come to uh, uh, St. Jude's. Uh, we can refer people. Uh, the Frank Carr Foundation, um, either online or call us. Um, the Frank Carr Foundation uh, on on our website has a, a list of resources um, and partnerships that we have. Um, there are also Facebook groups. Uh, there are Cape Fear Pride, Wilmington Pride. I think 
uh, or Cape Fear Pride has a, a Facebook presence and a, an online presence, and hopefully we'll have another Pride celebration this year. Uh, for the trans community specifically, I think it's called the Wilmington Trans Community. I'm embarrassed that's the wrong name. Um, but on there is also a list of resources of friendly friendly doctors, friendly places to go, friendly places to shop, friendly places to get your hair cut. So there's a number of places to find this information. And we will post as many of those as we can on the web post, along with the addition of this coastline. And that's our time. Reverend McLaughlin of St. Jude's MCC, thank you so much for sharing your story today. Thank you, Rachel. Coastline's technical director is Ken Campbell. Coastline is a production of WHQR Public Media. If you missed part of this episode, look for it at whqr.org or find it on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. I'm Rachel Lewis-Hilburn for Coastline. Mm -hmm.